What's up, marketing interns? Today's Back Pocket Podcast is presented by Homie, the social media platform built for students to meet alumni of the same institution. On Homie, there's no connecting because there's already a Homie community waiting for you. Start building relationships today by signing up on Homie.io. Now let's roll the intro music. Today is March 19th, and the boys from the back pocket are changing it up, and we are feeling lively as all get out. Declan Brown, how are you? Uh, we're great. We're energetic. We're exuberant. And like Andrew said, we're changing it up. This is a change-up podcast. This is mandatory change-up podcast. Um, normally, we'd give you our average quality. We'd have a couple things to say in the front end of our podcast before we get to our interview. However, we had the most uh, exuberant and wonderful experience with Shad Ireland, our guest on the show today. Um, nothing but great things to say about him. What do you got for us, Andrew? Um, I was locked in for the 50-minute span to the point of motivation to con- to just be the best version of myself. I know we continue to hear that through what our four years here at St. Thomas, but Shad Ireland's story continues my continues a um, a journey that we've been on of just trying to find the people that are. You look at them and they, you believe their image is common, uh, the visual. But when you hear their story and you hear what they've been through, this is why we do the podcast. Yeah, Chad is the reason we do, and got people like Chad Ireland are the reason we do this podcast. One hundred percent, like you said, just a common guy, and more than willing. I never met a more humble guy in my life. With everything that he's done and has accomplished in his life, um, you would never expect that. Do you want to give like a sixty second on the clock? biography just so they have kind of perspective of who he is um through the article that we read yeah and then so he's a dialysis patient um which is uh kidney failure so yeah and he had kidney cancer as well he was 11 when he first was on dialysis and he's 45 now yeah and he was told he was going to die multiple times in his life Mm -hmm. um at he at 11 he was told he was going to die by the time he was 16 dialysis patients don't just don't live very long and then again um when he was 25 years old he then went from um, on the verge of death and just uh, not in a good situation to pulling himself um, and willing himself to become uh, a, the person of his dreams, which was going to be a professional athlete. He ended up running in Ironmans, which is a triathlon event, which you run, you bike, and you swim. He's just a phenomenal story and a living legend, literally. Yes. Um, he shares his story in full, and he also brings light upon a foundation that he started, um, and then that has led to him um, starting a journey of trying to flip healthcare on its head and make it a personalized individual approach instead of the um, let's label you and put you in a box type atmosphere. The cookie cutter method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think let's kick it to this interview, and I thoroughly hope you enjoy this. We sure did. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to it. Today's guest is a very inspirational person who we've gotten to know through a kind of freak um, small world instance. He was Declan's Uber driver, and I guess, Declan, you want to just give us a little lead-in to how you yeah, guys met? Yeah, so uh, it was my birthday Tuesday. I was uh, at the Wild Onion, you know, I just turned 22, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we're going home at like 1.30 in the morning, my buddy calls me an Uber. Or actually, my buddy Gamiel and actually Gamiel was on the podcast before. But anyways, we got an Uber home, and it happened to be our guest today, Shad Ireland, and uh, we just connected on a immediate level right away. I found out about the Shad Ireland Foundation. I then looked into your story, Shad, and it's phenomenal. Thank and, you. Yeah, now we're getting Shad on the uh, the podcast today. Um, so with that being said, I mean, hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I think we sent you the questions and gave you, and you, you were able to research us a little bit yeah. as we researched you. Um, we're an average podcast, a couple of average guys trying to learn about society as we talked prior to this, uh, the start of the show. Um, so we like to start off our, que- our interview with a question sure. of what is your average quality? Um, you know, I, uh, I work like everybody else. I have goals and dreams. Um, you know, I think we're all trying to get somewhere. Um, you know, that somewhere is the 
is the million dollar question. For mm-hmm. everybody else, it's different. Um, you know, and I think it all circles back to um, uh, concept of inspiration. I think an individual inspired can accomplish anything. And at the end of the day, when you're looking to um, achieve goals and dreams, you know, what is that thing that drives you? Because there's going to be days when you don't want to do what it is that you want to do. You know, if you're in college, you don't want to take a philosophy class on a Monday at 8.30 in the morning. But I can tell you it was that philosophy class that I took in college that changed my life. You know, I had a professor that, you know, blew my hair back and taught me these concepts that I use today, reflection, realization, and perception. Mm -hmm. But the last place I wanted to be on a Monday morning at 8.30 was in a philosophy class. So, um, you know, I I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I just told him, I said, life will take you on an interesting journey. You just got to put the seatbelt on and hold on for dear life. So, (laughs) Awesome. What were some of those teachings that the professor was kind of getting that really set home with you? Sure. Um, So... Well, first off, I was diagnosed with kidney failure at the age of 10. And um, when you're given that diagnosis, uh, life expectancy in general is normally three to five years on average. And so um, I started dialysis in 1983, and there were nine other children that started dialysis at the University of Minnesota. I'm the last one alive. And I can tell you I did everything that I was not supposed to do, and yet I'm still here. And so um, for years, I carried a huge chip on my shoulder. I was angry at the world. Um, I felt like I didn't have any control over this disease. Um, You know, a lot of times I think people that are given chronic and sometimes terminal illnesses uh, find themselves um, feeling sorry for themselves and that it's not fair. Um, And so, you know, as I watched these kids struggle with this disease and, and ultimately die and found myself still there... Um, you know, I didn't have any goals, any dreams. And, um, I ended up, um, in college. I, I was told I would live three to five years. Uh, I would never go to college. I would never become a professional athlete. I would never get married. I would never do any of the things that I wanted to do. And so I lived a life as a teenager. Um, you know, I struggled. I, I did things I probably shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, pushed the envelope a little farther than, you know, anybody does, but uh, I was expecting not to wake up the next day. And so I made decisions in my life based on that concept. So years later, I found myself um, attending Metropolitan State University, and I walked into uh, Professor Philip Bell's class. And, um, you know, it was interesting because um, Professor Bell walked in and he effectively said, good morning, my name's Philip Bell, and today I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one, why are you here? And number two, what inspires you? And I remember there was like 12 kids in the class at the time. One girl wanted to start a food shelf. One guy wanted to cure cancer. And I remember he got to me and he said, Mr. Ireland, why are you here? I said, it's a required course. And he said, okay. And he goes, what inspires you? And I said, nothing. And he goes, that's unacceptable. He goes, there has to be something that inspires you. And he's like, like, look, I want a college degree so I can make 100 grand a year so I can drive a Ferrari. And, you know, everybody in the class kind of looked at me, you know, sideways. And Mm -hmm. I'll never forget, Professor Bell looked at me and he he smiled and he winked and he began to teach. And and the the tools that he taught were reflection, realization, and perception. He said, you know, you have to reflect on where you've been, realize and accept where you are, and then perceive where it is that you're going to be ultimately. And it was in this class that he forced me to look inward. Um, to go to some pretty dark places, places that I didn't want to go. Um, I remember one of the first books he gave me to read was Tuesdays with Maury. I read it six times, couldn't put it down, you know. Um, And he, you know, gave us writing assignments. I mean, I hated this guy. He's like, I want you to write about a traumatic experience in your life. And I laughed. I'm like, my whole life's been traumatic. His response was, well, then you have a lot to write about, don't you? (laughs) Like, right? And so he forced me to reflect, realize, and perceive. And at the end of the class, I'll never forget, one of the questions he posed was, what does it mean to be educated? He said, is education a gift? And if it is, then do you have a responsibility to give back to others because you've been given this gift? And at the time, I didn't understand the the point that he was trying to make until I was walking out of a dialysis clinic, my dialysis clinic, a couple weeks later, and I saw a young man in a wheelchair. And he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he was using a pencil to drive his chair. And I'll never forget, it was, you know, 
blue sky, beautiful day, um, I was still angry at the world because I was given this diagnosis and, you know, I had no direction in my life. And um, this young man was coming in and I was leaving and our eyes locked and he smiled at me. And the first thought I had was, what are you smiling at? And then the next thought I had was, there go I, but for the grace of God. And it was at that moment that I realized what Professor Bell was trying to drive home. What would that young man give to spend 20 minutes in my shoes, to be able to walk for just a minute, you know what I mean? And it was at that point that I, you know, the world went from black and white to color. Um, I saw the world differently. And uh, he also taught us to ask questions and seek answers. He said the sign of an educated person is somebody that questions everything. And so I began to question this disease. Why is my life expectancy only three to five years? Why do I, you know, I questioned the process. I questioned everything. And out of those questions came something pretty remarkable. Um, I was able to do what others have, have never done. And it started with this concept of, can I beat this disease? Can I, you know, why do I have to? Why do I have to die in five years? Or, you know, how long can I live with this? How healthy can I be? And these are questions that were revolutionary. I mean, when you look at this patient population, they are, for the most part, pretty debilitated. But I think they buy into this concept that I'm a patient. And healthcare in general, I think, drives that message home. You know, this is, you're sick, you're a patient, stay in your lane, play your role. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't believe that you have to. I don't believe that, that an illness or, or anything else defines you. It's everything else, you know. I went on to become the first and only dialysis patient in the world to accomplish Ironman. I'm a triathlete. I'm a philanthropist. I'm an advocate. I'm everything but a patient. And it was that, that juxtaposition that I learned in Professor Bell's class, that ability to look at things differently, that made me the man that I am today. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Incredible story. First question would be, um, can we get this professor on the podcast? Is he... St- he still teaches okay. at Metro State. Okay. And okay. interestingly enough, you know, um, I've always... I have a lot of respect for Professor Bell. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you. So I was at Metro State and Professor Abebe taught. He was the dean of First College. And so I remember I went in and talked to Professor Abebe, and, and I'm really, I love Metropolitan State University. It gets a bad reputation as a city college, but there are some amazing people that work there. Um, I went in and I told him I was leaving school, that I was going to go be a professional athlete, and everybody thought I was nuts at the time. And Professor Abebe said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, he said, well, we've done our job. I said, well, what do you mean? He, I don't have a degree. And he goes... It's just a piece of paper. Now, he's the dean of the college, okay, who's telling me this, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm going to come back and get my degree. And he said, I'm, I'm sure you will. And, uh, but he said, we did our job. Did you not discover who you are? And, and so not only did I get that from Professor Bell, but I also got that from the dean of the college, yeah. you know? And, and that pushed me in, in, in the direction that I was meant to go, you know, and I had just amazing people that challenged me in my life that, you know, there was a point in my life where people saw hope in me and potential that I never saw, you know, and part of the reason I do what I do now and try to help others is because of those people. I have, I have a debt, you know, those people made me the man that I am today because they took a few minutes to, to care when I could care less. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's so funny because my mom told me, because my brother... (laughs) Now your brother's getting ready to decide to go to college, and like everyone always has this huge stipulation. I'm like, where do you, where are you going to go to college, and what are you going to do? And yeah. like, and when you when you come to college, you usually have no idea. You have to choose a major at some point, and you mm-hmm. figure it out. But even as seniors, sometimes like a lot of our friends don't know what they're going to do yet. And yeah. and what my mom said was exactly what you said: is college is just a time for you to grow up and for you to realize what your potential is. And as long as you can accomplish that, you can accomplish anything else you want to accomplish. Yeah. And I think that's just like totally speaks to what you just said. Um, but another thing that I really want to understand and help our marketing interns, we call our marketing interns listeners. Okay. Um, Cause they listen to our podcast and then market to other people by word of mouth. Okay. Um, but what I wanted to understand is 
I'm not a dialysis patient, nor is Andrew, nor is a lot of other people. Sure. What is it like to be a dialysis a, a dialysis patient? Sure. And like, how would you explain that to someone who doesn't have these? Well, that's type a great of pains? question. Um, you know, I, I'm not your typical dialysis patient. Sure. I look at things differently, but I can tell you that when I work with patients, I see a reflection of myself in them. Um, it literally is a journey, you know, from initial diagnosis to, you know, the rest of your life. And um, a, lot of, a lot of patients are what they call non-compliant. You know, the new word is non-adherent. Um, it's a kinder, gentler word. But at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of times we don't do what we're supposed to do. And I think that's just uh, inherent in human nature. Um, you know, non-adherence comes from anger, fear, loss of self-control. So those are the driving factors. I think with chronic disease in general, um, you feel like you have no control. And you would do anything to, to have some semblance of control. So you do the things that you may not, or you, you probably shouldn't be doing, but you do them because you feel like, you know, I'm making a, an active decision, I have some control. So there's a psychological component that goes into it. And so, um, you know, there is those three things. Um, uh, when I was diagnosed early on, I um, spent a lot of my time literally laying on the floor hugging the toilet after dialysis. I was so sick. And, you know, there's a machine, and effectively what dialysis is, it replaces your kidney function. So people that are on dialysis have no kidney function. Um, they have, they don't have the ability to urinate. You know, I don't pee. So, you know, um, and so the machine does what your kidneys do, and normally you're dialyzed, you know, three to four hours in a clinic, um, and, uh, Unfortunately, dialysis clinics are popping up on every corner. Mm -hmm. um, DeVita and Fresenius are the largest dialysis providers in the country. You also have your independent clinics. And so these patients literally dialyze three days a week. Um, you know, as I became an educated patient, and one of the things I try to do when I work with patients is this, this concept of engage, educate, and ultimately empower. Try to give them the tools and the resources so that they can make informed decisions. Right. Um, so they can be involved in managing their care. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do that uh, a lot of patients don't do is a thing called home dialysis. So I have a machine in my house. I set it up. I dialyze myself. And, uh, you know, and I dialyze on average four to five hours, four days a week. And, um, you know, getting back to your question about feeling, I can tell you that as a patient that dialyzes longer, I feel better. And one of the concepts that um, patients struggle with is they feel sick when they're on the machine. I don't necessarily feel sick anymore because we've tweaked the process. We've fine-tuned it. Mm -hmm. But your average patient feels very sick. And so the, the, the idea is, well, I want to spend less time on the machine because then I'll feel less sick. You know, that's, right. that logic doesn't necessarily work. Think about this. Your kidneys function 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so if you're only getting three hours of dialysis three days a week and you're getting 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's a discrepancy in how you would feel versus how somebody that is on dialysis feels. Mm -hmm. wow. And it's significant. Yeah. Yeah, no my, uh, my grandfather was, um, going through dialysis from the, for the majority of my lifetime. I think wow. it was the mid 1990s okay. until, um, 2012. So I'm 22, going to be 22 at the end of this month, 21 years old. And he was going through dialysis for 16 years. Nice. Um, and there was points that during his lifetime where he had the uh, stay-at-home dialysis okay. machine. Good. Um, he was reached that point where he was healthy enough, and then he had setbacks where he had to go back to the hospital. So I have visual memories, not very vivid, because I was younger at that time. But my grandfather had some really strong days, mm -hmm. and there were some times where you knew that like this whole process was of him having a machine that works for his kidneys doing a toll on his body and yeah. he was losing um, hope and um, when you mentioned the um, this um, loss of control and you going through the process of educating and giving them the empowerment um, 
those must be the rewarding feelings. Those must be where you find the satisfaction right now and giving back in that regard. Is is that correct? It is. Um, you know, I, I always wanted to be a professional athlete when I was a kid. You know, um, I wasn't blessed. I mean, I'm five foot five on a good day, you know, 150 pounds soaking wet. So, you know, um, uh, I had to bleed for it, as they said, as you know, a couple of my coaches said. But, um, and that was something that was very selfish. And when I looked at what I was able to accomplish, first off, they said I was insane. I mean, I remember when I walked into the clinic and said that I was going to do the Ironman, they literally gave me a prescription for talk therapy and meds and told me I lost my mind. You know, this was never going to happen. You were going to kill yourself. I literally weighed 75 pounds. I'd been on dialysis 20 years. And they're like, he's crazy. He can never do this. And um, I came across a theory called cardiorenal. And it's a theory that's been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, I was patient X. And this theory works. And uh, I was literally able within 12 months to go from 75 pounds to 142 pounds. Um, 6% body fat. And I showed up in Lake Placid, New York, and I got my teeth kicked in. You know, um, I... Funny story. I got passed by a 73-year-old woman during the race. Cool. She slapped me on the rear end, told me to hang in there, Shad. I'll see you at the finish line. The reason I know she was 73 is they write their age on their left calf. So she went by me probably running seven-minute mile, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, right? But so to get to your question, um, so I was able to accomplish this amazing thing called Ironman, 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, 26.2-mile run. I was told I would never do it, and um, lo and behold, I got an opportunity to do a speaking engagement, my first, and I had a patient that walked up to me after my speaking engagement, and he had tears in his eyes, and he had this notebook paper, and he, he started reading me these questions, and he's like, how many vitamins a day do you take? How many hours a day do you sleep? What kind of shoes do you wear? He wanted the formula, and at the time, I couldn't answer his question, and it frustrated me, and that set me on the path to try to figure out how to give back because, you know, what I did, okay, great, you know, but there are other amazing athletes out there that have accomplished other things. Iron Man, I mean, you know, you look at, look at Terry Fox in Canada, for instance, you know, from the 70s. I mean, mm-hmm. there are amazing stories everywhere. And so, you know, I don't feel like I'm anything special what I feel that I do that is special is when I get to work with people and I get to kind of give them the model for success. I created a process called stability modeling that works and effectively within 90 days we can help patients to become stable and then perpetuate that stability long term with the goal being they feel better and they learn to successfully live while on dialysis. They return to work. They go to school, they do the things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And it gives them back that hope, that point that you that you touched on. You know, um, unfortunately, we're really good in this country for fixing problems if you're sick. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not good at, at delivering hope. And, you know, the there's a psychological component to being sick that I think a lot of people don't think about. You know, doctors and nurses are trained to think about quantifiable data, you know, it's binary, it's on or off. Well, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with humans. You're dealing with people that have emotions and feelings. And it's okay to be angry. You know, I trained. I was pissed off. My coach is like, you look mad. And I'm like, I am. <laughs> but it was that anger. Being angry, there's nothing wrong with anger in general. It's what you do with that anger. Um, how it perpetuates you to, to either do good or to do bad. You know, how you treat people. Um, You know, and I utilized that anger to propel me when I was training, you know. And um, ultimately, you know, I loved being an athlete. I never got to fulfill my goal of racing Kona. Um, That's the world championships in Hawaii. Um, And I had a, a reporter ask me once, she said, how do you feel about never making Kona? That was your dream, right? And I told her, I said, Some dreams are never meant to be realized, but it's those dreams that aren't realized that become the catalyst for others to achieve theirs. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't look at the fact that I didn't get to race Kona. I look at the fact that I got to help patients, Steve and Tom and Terry. I mean, the list is long, you yes. know. And, and, and to me, that's, that's where all this was meant to be. You know, it wasn't about the race. It was about the impact that I could have. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I remember you mentioned earlier, like, you're um, just you want to be you wanted to be a professional athlete where did that exactly come from did you just want to be the best is that exactly kind of where it came from or where how, where were you where are you pointing to well i mean i had a single mom growing up um my mom was a nurse worked two jobs put herself through night school in order to become a nurse um and uh grew up in west st paul um and so so you grew up around here then yeah. This is West St. Paul, I think? Well, no. West St. Paul's... Uh, oh, no, West St. Paul's on the other side. This other is side. This is East. Yeah. Um, but St. Paul. You know, mm-hmm. I'm an I'm Irish, St. Paul, you know. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I was always, you know, I was always smaller, um, you know, and, and I always um, pushed myself to be, to be better, to stand out, mm-hmm. um, to be recognized, I guess, a little bit as a kid. Um and so um, I looked at what athletes did, and, you know, I wanted to play football, and, you know, and, and I just didn't have the size, and, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. Sure. So, and then being diagnosed at age 10 um, with this disease, you know, that and everything else was pretty much, you know, out the window. Yeah. And I was fighting for my life. And, you know, at one point I was like, why can't I be? You know, and again, that goes back to Professor Bell. You know, um, you, you have to ask the question, you know, well, why not? You know, why do I have to be just a dialysis patient? You know, I remember my doctor, when, when I told him I was going to do this, he said, this has never been done. And uh, I don't think it can be. Well, what happens if I try? Well, you could kill yourself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I'm dying anyway here if I don't. So, you know, I didn't see the the issue yeah um different way to look at the world i guess no definitely and i i think one thing that just really stuck to me when i was reading your story is like working out at 75 pounds after you just had your transplant your kidney transplant and just how just the amount of mental toughness you need to have to go from barely being able to walk for five minutes on a treadmill to Mm -hmm. running and competing in an ironman like, that just spoke to me out of anything else of just how much mental toughness you had. So, like, how was it just starting out in just that whole process? Well, here's the thing. Um, I did this, so I lost my transplant. Sorry, that's time. right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it took me two years to recover from that. And a few years later, um, I mean, I was 31 years old when I started training. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm effectively you know, grown, um, who at 31 decides they want to be an athlete, you know, so everybody, I I understand why they thought I was crazy, but there were some people that I told, um, that, uh, laughed at me, you know, friends, okay, you know, guys I grew up with, you Mm -hmm. know, and, um, man, that hurt, you know what I'm saying, that was a punch in the nose, you know, I could deal with the doctors and the nurses and everybody else telling me that I was, you know, insane. Sure. But my friends were like, you know, my mom being a nurse was like, you're crazy. You can't do this. And then my friends were like, what? You know, and so I remember being in the gym four hours a day, six days a week and trying to figure this out. Like I went on the Internet. I, you know, I read what I could about triathlon. Sure. And, um, you know, I remember I went to Lifetime, you know, 2003. I walked in there and, you know, I thought well, if I'm going to be an athlete, I need muscles. So I went in the gym where the weights were, Mm -hmm, and I saw this guy lifting 100-pound dumbbells, right? And I went to pick up the bar. I couldn't even pick up the bar. You know, the bar weighs 25 pounds. And so then I'm like, well, i got to run. So I went to the treadmill, and I literally could not run five seconds. And I remember leaving Lifetime that day feeling dejected. Like, maybe they're right. Maybe I can't do this. And then I told myself, um, nope. I'm coming back tomorrow, and by Friday, I was going to walk 30 seconds. That was the goal. That was it. And, you know, 30 seconds is nothing. But to me, it was this insurmountable mountain that I could not climb. And I remember Friday came, and I got on the treadmill, and I did it. 
but it was that achievement that propelled me to 45 seconds that propelled me to a minute Mm -hmm. and six months later I met my first coach and I'll never forget I walked up to him he was uh, a triathlete accomplished and I said I understand you coach people for triathlon and I need a coach and he's like okay he said well how many um how many centuries have you done and a century is a hundred mile bike ride and I looked at him and I'm like how many of them I'm supposed to have done? And he's like, he's like, are you a collegiate swimmer? And I'm like, a collegiate what? And he's like, well, how many marathons have you run? And I'm like, uh, none. And he's like, and when you're doing an Ironman? And I go, yeah. And he goes, when? Six months from now. And he's like, impossible, not going to happen. And I said, well, let me show you what I can do. I've been training, you know, because I, I got all this confidence, and yeah, sure. I got on the treadmill, and he said, all right do a five-minute warm-up, and then he came back, and he said, all right, well, show me what you got. And I said, you're looking at it. And I was literally running a 15-minute mile. Yeah. It took me six months to get to a point where I was running a 15-minute mile, which a normal average person could walk. Yep. Yeah. And I'll never forget the look on his face. And fortunately for me, triathletes tend to be type A. And so... You know, I'm sure the thought that was going through his mind was, how am I going to get this guy ready in six months when he's running a 15-minute mile? You know, oh, and by the way, I'm on dialysis. Yep. You know. And this never bites before or swam. Correct. And so six months later, I was running an eight-minute mile. I had one of the greatest coaches. And, uh, you know, I have a lot to uh, thank Dan Cohen for. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I've had amazing people in my life that have... You know, I don't believe things happen randomly. I think things happen for a reason. And these people were in my life at certain points to propel me to, you know, ultimately to where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Do I know what that is? No. Um, you know, it's been an interesting ride. Um, I'm excited about tomorrow. I'm looking forward to the things that we're developing, the things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel focused, um, confident, um, and driven to give back. Um, I'm frustrated with the healthcare system as it in its in its current state because they talk about change and they talk about innovation and they talk about you know all these buzzwords that are just marketing and you know I created a process called stability modeling. The last patient that I worked with, literally, we were able to. Um, he was type two diabetic. He has been on an insulin pump for twenty years. His, kidney, his kidneys were failing. He was stage three, so he's about halfway to dialysis. Um, you know, and I asked him, one of the first questions I ask when I work with patients is, you know, what does stability look like to you? What are your goals and dreams? What would you be doing if you, if you could do anything, what would it be? Mm-hmm. You know, and they look at me like I'm high. They're like, <laughs> what do you mean I'm a dialysis patient or I'm sick? Well, okay, let's put that aside. What do you like to do? What do you, what do you want to accomplish? You know, and he said to me, he goes, I would love to come off my insulin pump. Now, at the time, I wasn't going to burst his bubble, but I subscribed to the same theory that every other endocrinologist and nephrologist and doctors in the world subscribe to. If you're on an insulin pump, that's about as stable as you're going to get, okay? So this guy was using 60 units of insulin a day, which is a lot. Within the first 90 days, we were able to get him down to 13 units. Within 90 days, he came off of his insulin pump, which is unheard of. The success that we had with Steve was remarkable. He's considered an outlier, like myself. Mm-hmm. And within seven months, they were able to titrate his dosing down to a point where he came off of insulin. I can tell you to this day, Steve is still off insulin. His kidney function uh, went from 48% to 76%, where it's holding. And he's been that way for over three years. And that's what this process stability modeling can do. I think we can scale and duplicate Steve. Um, it's a hard sell, though, you know? And so uh, that's part of my frustration um, with, you know, trying to get this into the hands of patients. Um, it's a manual process that needs to be automated. And so we are trying to create what we're calling a healthcare platform. Um, I believe we can disruptively innovate healthcare. I think we can start with kidney disease and type 2 diabetes, but what's interesting about the concepts that we've developed is it has the ability to transcend disease states. What we have created is a better chronic disease management strategy, and that strategy can be utilized, um, I mean, women's health, rheumatology, addiction, um, anything that would require a chronic disease management strategy. 
and the uniqueness is in the technology. We came up with a, a two-part interface, a front-end and a back-end effectively, a mobile user interface that communicates with a cloud-based data aggregation system that will leverage an AI UI decision support system, so it'll use artificial intelligence, and it focuses on two areas, um, predictive patterns and user-generated data, and then adaptive interventions based on those predictive patterns. Not to get too nerdy, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and again, the front end, the, the magic is really the back end, the data aggregation system. Because right. I think the future of healthcare is going to be user-generated data. So it, if I understand this correctly, it's taking um, how patients are feeling in certain areas and documenting that. Correct. And for when the next patient comes around, the patient X comes around, and he's having certain symptoms certain feelings, certain like that, it's able to identify and understand what he's going to do and then give him the answer, the back end, as to how he's going to best go forward. Yes and no. Um, What's what's interesting is, you know, for instance, let me me just break this down to give you a rudimentary, you know, uh, example. Sure. You know, let's say you are patient X, Okay. okay? You eat McDonald's four days a week. Like clockwork, man. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, you're in McDonald's. You love Big Mac. Super size, man. That's right. So the AI component will notice this trend in the data. So the debate that's going on right now is what does user-generated data look like? How do we get that data? And then what do we do with it? Okay? How do I get you to generate that data? And then what do I do with that data? And right now, doctors and nurses are making chronic disease management decisions based on about 30% of the information. They're looking at their blood work and the information that they have. But I believe that our platform can generate that 70% of the data that's missing. So imagine if they could look at you on a daily basis and then, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and then, and then have that data then aggregated and presented to them at a 30, 60, 90 day interval. Mm-hmm. That would allow them to make a more informed disease management decision. Get ahead of something that they might not catch right it, at the first day. Exactly. Because they're seeing you for five minutes. Hey, how do you feel? I feel great. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Next patient. You know. Right. But but you are the one that's living with this on a day-to-day basis. And so what are the decisions that you're making? And so one of the things that, that we do that's unique that gives us, I think, competitive advantage is, you know, we have a way of engaging patients that other people are struggling with. And so, and that, and that really is the million dollar question. If you can, if you get engagement right, you win the game. Right. And um, that was my wheelhouse. That's what I did for 12 years. I came in and worked with patients and improved outcomes and compliance and everybody scratched their heads. How did you do it? Mm-hmm. Because I was the worst patient ever. Okay. <laughs> I was patient X, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Um, so I understand the psychology a little bit better than some of these other people. And I say that respectfully. There are a lot of smart people that are working on this, you know, but um, ultimately if I can give you the tools and the resources, you can then take an active role in your care. You can also then have a better conversation with your healthcare team. And then our back end really will package that data up, give that to the doctors and the nurses and allow them to make more informed chronic disease management decisions. What we have is a strategy that really provides a win-win-win. Patient, provider, payer, everybody wins. And the hypothesis for us is, can you initially stabilize a patient? Can you perpetuate that stability long-term? And does long-term stability result in a smaller financial footprint by the patient on the mm-hmm. system? And that's really what everybody cares about, is yep. that footprint. Mm-hmm. But I happen to care about the patient themselves, you know, how they feel, and, you know, getting them to a point where, you know, like, like the last patient that I worked with, Steve, you know, he got a chance to take his daughters to Italy. I mean, he still checks his blood sugars. Three years later, he's, his blood sugars are 115. They're stable. Yeah. But he still checks them because he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right. Yet he's still doing, you know, stability modeling. He's still following those strategies, and he's having success. And he's scratching his head. He's like, how long can this go on? And I said, I think indefinitely. Yeah. So. That's so, insane. Yeah. I mean... This healthcare situation could potentially help a, uh, a end, lot of people. Uh, end, end, yeah, endless millions, amount of people. Millions, millions of, people. of people. My question to you would be: What would it take to get the ball moving more um, rapidly? If, if say the listener would yeah. to, to catch your story, 
what would he hear that would be like, okay, I can use this? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm still actively working with patients. Um, unfortunately, it all goes back to resources. Sure. Yeah. You know, I have I, I've met with United Healthcare. I've met with some others and and great organizations that are doing innovative stuff, but they're taking a wait and see approach. Um, you know, we have one of the best UX design firms on standby, uh, John Golden's firm here locally. Um, you know, and we've got to develop the technology. This manual process has to be scaled. How do you get it into the hands of 10,000 people? Because part of the disconnect is the healthcare system is not going to buy into this because we don't have a thousand patients that we can show success. Okay. Well, how do you develop a thousand patients? You can't do that going patient to patient to patient. You have to utilize some form of technology. Right. And so for us, we're trying to raise half a million dollars. Um, that money would go into the UX design, would go into the development, and would go into content development. Those are the three things that we need to effectively show um, somebody else, you know, potential companies and, and funders and other things that yeah. that this thing has has wheels. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's my coach used to say, um, "How do you need an elephant?" And I told him, trunk first. <laughs> and he said, that's funny. One bite at a time, you know. And so that's been my approach with patients is I, I work with people individually. Ultimately, I would love to be in a position where we can develop this platform. Um, and we'll get there, you know. Um, Rome wasn't built in a day. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to take the healthcare system along kicking and screaming. Uh, it's going to take... I think young entrepreneurs, it's going to take people like yourself that are looking to be disruptively innovative in certain fields. Um, and how do you how do you change the world, man? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I remember sitting in Professor Bell's class being a, you know, being a capitalist. And along the way, I became an idealist. You know, sure. I believe an average person can do extraordinary things. They yep. just have to be inspired. That's awesome. I mean, one thing that's really stood out to me through the themes of your stories that you've said over this 40 minutes or so, um, society tends to, or society does, put these labels in these boxes on individuals. Um, and you're just an uh, incredible example, and I hope our marketing interns hear this and realize that these labels and these boxes are meaningless. Mm. They are something that the outside is putting on you. And really, when someone questions why these labels are on you, a dialysis patient, um, a low-income citizen, um, a person of an ethnicity, those situations, granted, there are opportunities that present themselves that will allow you to move steps forward. But if you just succumb to the labels, those opportunities will never come. Understanding, I believe Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about it, (laughs) that there's no luck I mean, their luck, his theory is there is no luck. It's really taking advantage of opportunities at the right time. Yeah. Um, so Gladwell also said that it takes 10,000 man hours to become a prodigy. Yeah. You know, and are you willing to commit 10 years of your life to something yeah. in order to see that change through? And a lot of people aren't, unfortunately. But I, I think we're conditioned to think in the negative. You know, a word comes to mind, impossible. You know, when I look at that word, I see I am possible. Most people see impossible, ooh, the ability ooh, nice. to not do something, <laughs> Take that. you know, and, and it's, it's, my coach said this, um, he said, the mind leads and the body follows painfully, you know, it starts here, you know, you got to believe you can fly, you know, um, and then it's just a matter of flapping your arms a lot, um, <laughs> you know, so, um, it, it, it really is those things and, and you know, you're right. It's not about the label. It, it's about taking those obstacles, turning them into achievements. You know, um, we're not entitled to anything in this life except the chance. And it's what you do with that chance. It's what you do with that opportunity. You know, I mean, eventually we'll find a rainmaker. Who knows? Maybe somebody hears this and says, you know what? I'd love to flip healthcare on its head. You know, let's make it happen. Let's see. You know, because there are those kind of people out there. Exactly, and that's what you're looking for. Exactly, it's a matter of finding those people, and you know, how do you create those strategic partnerships? How do you find like-minded people? How do you, you know, and and that's one of the things that I loved about about being a triathlete is that community. We raise a lot of money for charity, we give back. Um, you know, 
even though we're all type A, there were days when I was struggling on the race course and I had other athletes that stopped and paced me back into the race, even though I'm competing against them mm-hmm. because they know what it was like to be there. And, you know, um, interestingly enough, I was reading an article the other day. It said the guy that started Starbucks got 247 no's before he got his first yes. At what point would you start to consider that maybe opening a coffee shop on the corner might not be the best business venture? Mm -hmm. You know, 150, 75, you know. But, again, he stuck with it, and Starbucks is, you know. Way more than it needs to be. Correct. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. And I think this, again, comparing it with your story, as you mentioned, the desire to perform on a triathlete field, a professional field, your family, the people closest to you were hesitant to say, let's do this together. They didn't want to see me die. They didn't want to see you die. They didn't want to see you fail in that extreme manner. Yeah. Um, and Starbucks, they, no, they, didn't want, they didn't want to invest in him. Like There, there are those incident, instances. And again, um, I hope there is a common theme of the belief in yourself. Yeah. Like, is just continuing, is habitual throughout your story um, and inspiring myself and I know Declan yeah. right now because we are just nodding yes. at every word you're saying um so this has been an incredible experience just hearing your story um, thank you for the opportunity yes yeah. and I think we we always ask two questions and should we ask these two questions dude as we do with every other interview gotta do the routine things routinely okay. yes so I'll ask the first question okay um we like to ask a bar story okay. and we frame this question in a way that if you were sitting at the bar um on a Friday night after work and you have a stranger next to you, and you want to spark up a conversation and keep them um, interested. In, interested. And I know you'll probably have plenty of them. You probably <laughs> told some of them already. Yeah. Right. But uh, would there be a story that you would share to a stranger that'd be like, "This person is going to appreciate it," and it could be lighthearted, it could be inspirational. You could take it for what it is. Is it is it a male or a female that I'm sitting next to? I mean, that that oh, really point. depends on the strategy. Sure, you know? absolutely. I, I, I happen to be one. I happen to be single, so mm-hmm. if right I'm on. sitting next to you know a female, it might be a different conversation. Sure. But um, you know, uh, to 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 get to your point, um, you know, one of the things that I think we we tend to not do in this society is to actively listen. Um, you know, so if I was sitting next to a stranger, um, you know, I might just say, hello, my name is Shad, you know, and see if they're even receptive to talking and, you know, let it go from there. Um, I don't know that I would want to tell them about myself as much as I would want to find out about them. Um, I know who I am and it took me a long time to get here, you know, and I'm comfortable with who I am, but you know, the only way that I can learn and grow is by listening to other people. So, you know, I, I talked a lot of this interview. I apologize. I didn't mean to monopolize the conversation, but, uh, um, but that, that would be my bar story. I would, I would literally ask them about themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. So what if, what if you had to recruit someone? So like, this is a, if this is a girl, obviously you turn into the coach, you turn into a recruiter. What What do you do then? How's the dynamic change? Well, I can tell you the, 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 the best success that I've ever had with women is, hi, my name is Shad. What's your name? Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they, they, you know, they're, they're waiting for the, you know. The pickup line. Right. You know, oh, baby, your eyes baby. are just, you know, <laughs> yeah. just here it comes, right? But I found that women, just people in general, relationships start with friendships, so if I treat that person like a friend or at least try to understand who they are to see if they're friendship material, um, then I think um, you'll have success as far as recruiting or whatever else, yeah. you know. You know, slick lines, a quick joke. I mean, they're, you know, they may get your foot in the door, but ultimately who you are at your core um, is really, I think, what, you know, helps people to connect with each other. You know, are you somebody that I respect? Are you somebody that I admire? You know, getting back to what I said in the beginning, you know, we're a single serve, you know, society. It's, you know, you literally have two minutes to make an impression on somebody. Um, You know, and I wish that was different. You know, Um, I wish we all had time to sit around and talk like this. Yes, this has been awesome. I I know we've had we've asked this question, I think, maybe 10 times. We've, We've started doing this more frequently. And that is the first time. 
someone has took that question in that regard, and that's fantastic. Yeah. I know my dad mentioned, we had him on a few podcasts prior, and his one of his tidbits that he shared with us was listening. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what question inspired him to say that. but his, his, That was more like so advice for us, or like what his goal was for this year. So this is like our second season of the podcast, and his second his goal for the second season was to be just a better listener. Yes. And to just totally um, grow and understand what people are saying and just take away from himself to, for someone else to have the stage. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's so funny that he it has the same message that you had and you guys Full are circle. totally mm-hmm. not even close related. And I don't think you listen to John and Sarah on the podcast at all. <laughs> I haven't. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. But that's awesome. So our final question. Okay. Um, from the time you woke up to the time now, what did you learn today? Hmm. Good question. Um, well, I learned that I have an infinite ability to push myself. Um, you know, I, I was at the gym uh, earlier today and uh, struggling, as we all do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an athlete anymore. Uh, I'm training for health and wellness. You know, and, um, you know, there's always that voice in the back of your head that says, you know, you really don't have to be doing this. You could be in bed, you know, you could be sleeping, you, sure. could, you know, being joy- enjoying a, you know, a giant sized burger or something, you know, and, um, you know, it's that ability to, to quell that voice. Um, you know, I learned about a couple of people today, you know, uh, I stopped in and, and bought a water and struck up a conversation with a girl behind the counter, you know, just because I wanted to. You know, I like to talk, if you can't tell. Yeah. Um, well, so, awesome. but, um, is that why you started driving a, a Uber? Yes. Just so you could talk to people? Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> I, uh, again, it, 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 it goes back to this idea of taking a moment and really kind of learning about others. You know, it's interesting. I, I think I shared this, this story with you. I had a gentleman in my car who asked me what went so dramatically wrong in my life that I became an Uber driver. Mm. And, uh, I found that interesting and, uh, you know, I've, I've done Uber off and on for a while and, um, you know, I flirted with the idea of maybe writing a book and, uh, if I do, that will be the title. What went so dramatically wrong in my life that I became an Uber driver. Yes. (laughs) So, but, um, you know, you can do anything you set your mind to. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, taking that first step and perpetuating yourself to the next and to the next. So I encourage you guys to continue with your podcast. This has been an awesome experience for me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for letting me educate you a little bit about kidney disease. Um, You know, I will tell you uh, in closing that there are 60 million Americans with uh, kidney disease. um, And um, that's when you add in type 2 diabetes and, and kidney disease underserved communities and communities of color are disproportionately affected by this disease. Um, there are things that could be done immediately that could significantly drop that number, but unfortunately we're not doing those things. Um, and that's why we're trying to drive education and this empowerment strategy. So, um, you know, hopefully somebody that hears this will, you know, if, if, if you can just move one person, then you've made a difference in the world. And that's it, man. If you could just make a difference in one person's life. So hopefully somebody hears this and it, and it makes a difference for them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. So that was a phenomenal interview with Shad Ireland. Again, thank you so much for Shad, to Shad for coming on. We thoroughly enjoyed it. We were locked in from the second that we started recording. Um, what an amazing story. What an amazing guy. And it's amazing that he's done so much already, and his motivation to give back is just unmatched. He wants to give back so much and give it all back. And, and I'm excited to be part of his journey going forward. Um, we talked to him afterwards, and there are going to be steps that the back pocket can help out Shad with his journey. And he's because he's already helped out our marketing interns. He's helped out us tenfold with just simply giving us 50 minutes of his time. Yeah, so thank you, Shad, again. Wonderful time. Maybe he comes on later on. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but, hey, we're back, and uh, guess what? We uh, didn't even start with an average quality of this episode. Everyone's probably like, what the heck's wrong with these guys? You know, what's going on? They gave us a two-minute intro, and now we're now they have the interview. So thanks for making it to the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did is uh, we put the front end, we put it on the back end. 
Now we got a whole back end that we just absolutely love and we're ready to get after it. Um, so to begin, hey, what do we normally start with, Andrew? Average quality. Average quality. So here's what we're hitting you with. Our average quality this week is understanding what the Ides of March is. Um, Andrew, do you, do you know what it even entails? Uh, I do remember you saying Ides of March, just that simple phrase, last episode, um, and I was lost. That's, that's all I got. Lost, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, let me educate you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the assassination of Julius Caesar. Um, it was March 15th, so you know another average quality is coming out with an episode talking about the Ides of March on the Ides of March, mm-hmm. uh, March 15th, which was uh, last Thursday. Um, but hey, we still got to talk about it. it's the Ides of March. Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess um, what I understood, or I had to look into it a little bit more because I was so average at it, um, I realized that uh, it was the assassination of Julius Caesar, who was uh, an emperor of Rome at the time, and that was when Rome was like sick, you know, like they were awesome. Uh, and then he got assassinated on the Ides of March, and that was officially marked by many historians, many religious believers, that um, that, that was a turning point from the um, Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Hmm. Um, so I would say this is our Ides of March podcast. I think you can, I can confirm that. Okay, uh, so no one got assassinated, uh, but this was a turning point in the, in the back pocket history, um, podcast 41. Definitely the Ides of March podcast, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely just turned everything around for us. I don't know. I just felt that way just because Shad's just a, an ultimate motivator and, like, everything he had to say just really, like, hit me so hard. I'm all on board and with I, that. And I just loved it. And yep. so I figured, you know, the turning point in our lives could easily be Podcast 41. The turning point in the marketing intern's lives could easily be Podcast 41. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hey, Ides of March podcast. Sure. Beautiful. Well said. Um, and I guess we have, we have to continue on um, with the back end now. We're, we're a little we're feeling a little awkward right now. Yes. We got even we got we got a new setup in our podcast right now. We need to talk about that. Yeah, we flipped up. Uh, we brought a table in here, and it's got a little bit more of a professional feel. I kind of uh, I don't know how we're I feel like there. looking right at you. I kind of like this is you weird. know the turn of your yeah, head. Usually we're like sharing each other's sweat on the on the food time, time, and that's usually fun um you know remember when we mentioned oh, yeah. feng shui mm-hmm. feng shui in this room is feeling a little more feng shui yeah there's, there's some, a little more energy in this room i can now. feel the feng shui yeah. let's just say that granted uh if any uh interior design person walk in here they'd think this place is a mess a zoo. It needs an absolute zoo mm-hmm. um because we just put a table in a space that doesn't that isn't meant to fit a table um but here we are we made it work. Absolutely. Uh, so let's continue on with the back end. Sure. Uh, the back end consists of a what did you learn and a feel good. And I know everyone's stuck around this long because it's just one of those podcasts where you need to stick around and be a finisher. Um, I can go ahead and start us with a what did you learn. Sure. Um, I've been doing some research on how we can expand our market. Mm. And I can just say we are going to start focusing on geo filter, back pocket geo filters. Mm. Um, that's all I can say right now. Allegedly, what does that mean? Um, the Snapchat geo filters will be oh expanded just, just upon. Paying for snap- no, sorry, okay. Keep Don't it. give me a just. This is. <laughs> let me just tell you that there's a plan okay. and a course of action that we will be taking. Okay, that's extensive. Okay, it's not just what I'm saying. Okay, it will be talked about further. Okay, nice. Uh, today I learned uh, that you have to be, or in Vermont. You can be um, at the age of sixteen and be li- and have a license to conceal and carry mm. a weapon. Okay. Um, so, some out there, yeah. People think Texas. You know, pe- everyone carries a gun around in Texas because you know that's just what they do. Yeah. Turns out Vermont is also in that in that in that fits the bill. Okay. Same with Arizona. There's your quinky dink for yeah, the day. There's your little quinky dink. So. Um, and then a feel good story. Yeah, sure. Should we set it at home? Finish it off. Yeah, let's okay. get it going. Uh, I think we'll do. We'll go with the marketing intern of the week type atmosphere Ooh, for this feel good nice, story. Nice. Yep. So um, we we uh, Andrew brings up a great point. I don't know if anyone got this far uh, last time we we mentioned this, but our feel good story is going to have a marketing intern of the week, and then we're just going to uh, feel good about that marketing intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to give them a couple pump ups, and then apply that to all the marketing interns and how they can be better for the week of March 19th. Yes. Uh, this marketing intern of the week goes out to my interviewee for, um, a company this past week. Um, he, he, I, I plugged the podcast during the interview nice. and he hit subscribe. What's his name by the way? Uh, Mr. Lonnie Fluck. Oh, sorry. Say that again. Uh, Mr. Lonnie Fluck. Fluck. F L U C K. Correct. Gotcha. Close. And he's the marketing intern of the week because he hit the subscribe button during the interview and then went on to listen to the podcast on his drive home, and it was confirmed through an email he sent me 
Um, and I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for becoming a marketing intern. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, uh, Lonnie Fluck. You know, taking the initiative, the Lonnie Fluck mentality, I think, nowadays is, you know, he's a doer. He's a go-getter. Lonnie Fluck's going to go out, and he's going to get you your, your job. He's going to get you your your uh, your success. He's going to get you that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Lonnie Fluck's an opportunity getter. Uh, I just want every marketing intern out there who's listening to be more like a Lonnie Fluck, man. We need more Lonnie Flucks in the world. We need Lonnie Fluck to just maybe maybe Lonnie Fluck can come on the podcast. I don't know, but I love Lonnie Fluck. I think Lonnie Fluck's mentality is just phenomenal. I think everyone needs to be more like Lonnie Fluck. Go make the most of your opportunities like our guy, Lonnie Fluck. Take care. Hope you guys have a good week. Be more like Lonnie Fluck. Take care.